from the athletes that I work with, typically I work with fighters. Okay. And so let's imagine you had a, an MMA fighter who was an, an unbelievable striker. So you had a, okay, Anderson Silva, Conor McGregor, right? What are you picked there, right? And then just deadly striker. Should that person work really hard on their grappling and their wrestling so that they don't have such, you know, a big gap in their overall skills? Or should they say, look, you know, I'll, I can train for three years on my wrestling and I'm still not going to be competitive with these guys or wrestlers their entire life. So I'm just not going to waste my ton of time on wrestling. And I'm just going to make sure that my striking is always at the highest level possible. And I'm just going to win that way. Welcome to the Barben Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Foley, and this podcast is presented by Barben.com. Dr. Andy Galpin is a tenured professor in the Center for Sport Performance at CSU Fullerton. In 2011, he earned his PhD in human bioenergetics and has done incredible work in regard to muscle fibers and how we understand them. On top of being a tenured professor, Dr. Galpin co-authored the book Unplugged in 2017 and works hand-in-hand with a variety of elite athletes. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Galpin to chat muscle fibers. We talk about what we know, what we don't know, and everything in between. As always, we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. Today on the Barbend Podcast, I am joined by Dr. Andy Galpin, who is arguably one of the front runners of muscle fibers and how we understand them today. Dr. Galpin, it is a pleasure to have you on and chat. I always love our conversations, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. And I've, I've enjoyed your work and, and working with you in the times we've gotten to exchange uh, just a tremendous amount, uh, as well as the content you yourself put out. So. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to somebody who's is fighting a good fight themselves. Well, first off, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I know all the folks here at Barbin love having you and featuring you in any form of content because of the great work you've done in this space. But without further ado, let's dive into some of our questions for today's podcast. My first question for you is on a topic that we discussed last time we chatted, and that was on the topic of hybrid muscle fibers. A lot of folks understand that there are three types of muscle fibers. We have type 1, type 2A, and type 2X. But a lot of folks don't understand that there are a lot of hybrid fibers in between. So could you give us a little bit more information on those hybrid fibers and how kind of the topical view of muscle fibers and how we understand them today? Yeah, sure. So in general, people are familiar with the concept that there are some fibers that are fast twitch and some that are slow twitch and like you said some that are maybe in the field or maybe they had a, a degree or the or their personal trainers that have tried to study what's going on they realize that there's also a 2x fiber um and from there uh general consensus is just wrong so there, there's a lot of confusion past that because it, it's really honestly a, a misnomer the idea that there's pure types anyway so if you go all the way to the beginning, you, you realize there's like a whole muscle. Picture your quad or your bicep, right? And a good analogy is kind of a ponytail. And so 
you'd call the ponytail one thing. So in this example, your quad is a ponytail. But really, a ponytail is just a composite of a whole bunch of individual you know, hairs. And so in this case, the muscle fibers themselves are the individual hairs. And what's different about muscle relative to hair is that the, the intrinsic properties of each one of those fibers can differ considerably from the other one. And so one would maybe be a fast-twitch fiber and another would be a slow-twitch fiber. But it's not really that simple because the fibers themselves aren't just fast or slow. They're really um, just on a different end of the spectrum. And so if you go to one end of the spectrum, an individual fiber might be what we call kind of purely slow-twitch, so a pure slow-twitch fiber. Other end of the spectrum would be a pure 2x or you know, the fastest fibers we have. But everything else is really, really kind of in between. So somewhere in the middle there, uh, closer to the 2x side, though, would be a pure 2a or you know, still a fast twitch. And then there's a bunch of hybrids in between. And so a fiber can be 95% uh, slow twitch and 5% fast twitch. It could be 80% 20. It could be 59, 60, 41. It could be any combination of these things. It could be 95% slow twitch, 5% fast twitch. The opposite, the inverse. It could be 52x, 52x. So really any combination. In fact, we see them uh, fairly regularly that are, you know, some part slow twitch, some part, uh, and slow twitch would be type 1. So I'll kind of use those interchangeably. Uh, it could be some part type 1, some part 2a, and some part 2x. And so it could be a triple hybrid. And, and so really, the, the a kind of example I will give would be if, if somebody paid you and said, hey, uh, there's tons of traffic in downtown LA. Let's figure out why the hell there's so much traffic. And so the first thing we need to do is uh, analyze what kind of automobiles are driving down the street there. And if you just wanted to get like a quick snapshot, you'd be like, okay, it's 50% cars and 50% trucks. And, and for most people, that would probably be good enough. 50, you know, oh, they're fast twitch and slow twitch fibers, fine. But if you really wanted to do a detailed analysis of, of that, you'd realize that there's tons of automobiles that aren't just cars or trucks. In fact, you have things like an El Camino that's kind of a hybrid, right? You have an SUV, and, but you have an electric one. And then you have like, well, is it a delivery truck or is it an F-150? Are we talking a school bus? Are we talking um, a motorcycle? A motorcycle is not the same as a car. Like, what are we talking about here? And so there, there's just a lot of uh, differentiation. And it's really not that different. So where you kind of decide to draw the line is somewhat arbitrary so it just depends on how much detail you want to get into these things and what you're trying to use information for that we can get there so that's kind of just a basic intro of of the language that we're talking about gotcha and the last time we spoke we talked about how training can actually influence muscle fibers and for i can't remember how we worded it but for a long time there was a misconception that like fibers couldn't change like i remember going through my college exercise science program and there were some parts of the textbook that were like, oh, fibers can't change. But more and more, I think there's more suggestion out there that fibers can change. And more importantly, I think... Yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond reproach at this point. Yeah. Um, anyone that suggests the opposite is, is just massively misinformed. Uh, and they've been misinformed for 30 plus years. It's, it's not even close. Uh, not only do we know that they change, but there have been, at this point now, hundreds of studies that can explain the exact molecular mechanisms that cause the changes. We know what happens upstream, downstream, molecularly. We know the genetics expression. So um, it's very well charted. <laughs> and so there's really no question. There is some question about things like, also like, so there's no question at all that there's a molecular possibility that the fibers have the ability to change. There are some questions about, well, 
to what extent can this happen? And what are the insults that are required to cause a change? So is this something that happens with normal physiology? Can exercise do it? If so, how much? How long does it take? Is this something that happens in a day? Does it take 10 years? Uh, can food do it? Can other things? So those questions are reasonably valid, but whether or not they can actually change is, is just beyond, like I said, reproach. Gotcha. So in terms of, let's say, exercise shifting fibers, out of all the training variables, which variables do you think are worth considering, like maybe heaviest for getting a certain adaptation for a fiber shift? So let's say I want to build more of like top end strength and power. Mm-hmm. Would it kind of correlate with traditional oh. logic of like, oh, we need to focus on intensity. We need to focus on velocity, things to that extent. Yeah. Now, this is a really good question. And I actually think you're, the way you answered it is probably the most correct way. So we do not understand which of the modifiable variables are the most important, with the exception of, of course, exercise selection. So if you're performing an exercise that is, say, not necessarily activating your your hamstrings, well, then you better not expect your hamstring fiber type to change because you're not actually activating it, right? So outside of exercise choice, though, volume, intensity, uh, don't really know. My, my gut is honestly, it's going to be driven mostly by volume. Um, in one direction, uh, but perhaps intensity in the other. But we really, we don't have any idea uh, from that perspective. So I would default right back to what you said, which is to say, okay, if you want to get more faster fibers, train simply like you would train to get more powerful, stronger, and faster. And we know that because when we have done those training studies, that is exactly what happens. And so we see that result fairly, fairly consistently. Or the opposite, if you want to do and get more slow twitch fibers, um, train more endurance based and, and probably more specifically uh, steady state longer duration endurance uh, to cause that that shift so that you're probably right in terms of what we know just for training is the best recommendation we can give um, the one exception would be things like fiber type specific alterations and so an example of that would be what we would call fiber type specific hypertrophy and so we know that traditionally strength training, and it doesn't even have to be the nuanced, you know, uh, sets of three, sets of five. It could be anything, you know, from heavy singles to sets of 10, 12, 15. That, that's that's kind of all lumped together. It's still basically strength training, right? So it could be classic bodybuilding or it could even be lower rep, uh, higher intensities, you know, pure, more pure strength training. It doesn't really matter uh, so far as we know. In both of those cases, they tend to selectively hypertrophy the fast twitch fibers. However, in recent years, very recently, there's some reasonable evidence and it's it's mounting. It, it's beginning to collect that higher repetition ranges may selectively hypertrophy the slow twitch fibers. And we see this in a barrage of ways. So for years, our lab and the stuff we've done has shown very clearly that endurance trained individuals often have their slow twitch fibers larger than their fast twitch fibers. And so we didn't necessarily know if that was, uh, you know, if they performed well in endurance events because they already had that in, in intrinsically or if that was an adaptation to the training. But it is direct evidence this is okay. Like these endurance folks tend to have their slow twitch fibers are larger than their faster twitch fibers, which is, you know, what we, would op- what we typically teach is the opposite. Usually faster twitch fibers are quote-unquote larger. Now, we follow that up in recent years with, with studies um, showing that maybe repetition ranges, say 25, 30 reps per set, 
will actually specifically hypertrophy both fibers, but the fat or the slow-twitch fibers will get larger uh, in proportion than the, the relative change in the fast-twitch fibers. Uh, and so more studies are coming out where they're specifically targeting that. Um, so we have kind of some indirect evidence and then some more direct evidence that's building where you could actually maybe get there. Um, and that's that, that conflates the issue of touch because now we're not necessarily differentiating between fiber type change and just simply changing the intrinsic properties of the fiber without changing their type. Because uh, we can also see that as well. We can see fast twitch fibers gain a lot of endurance ability. We can see slow twitch fibers gain a lot of speed and strength and size. And so it makes it really complicated to study because you have moving variables. One, did it change its type, right? Did it go from a slow twitch to a fast twitch? Or did it stay slow twitch and then simply get bigger? Um, so it makes it fairly complicated to study, but uh, we're making progress in those areas. How are some of the ways you guys are making progress there? So like, I know there's a little bit of gap there in terms of like nailing down the logistics, but what are some of the steps you guys are taking now to maybe more closely define what exactly is causing that? So yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. Um, there's a lot of uh, scientists. Mike Roberts at Auburn is doing a fantastic job. I don't know if you've worked with Mike before, but just a really sharp um, guy that uh, he's done a lot of really good studies. And I think he is doing a, a study or just completed a study where, you know, one group will do sets of five or eight or 10 or something like that. And the other group will do sets of 30. And then you take muscle biopsies before and after, and you look at, you know, uh, how the, the muscle cells themselves increase size. And, you know, if the fast twitch fibers increased by 10% in say the low training group, uh, those are the groups that did sets of five or eight or whatever. And so their fast twitch fibers went up 10% and their slow twitch fibers went up 5%. And then you looked at the group who did sets of 30 and their slow twitch fibers went up 40% and their fast twitch fibers went up 5%. And then, then it's a pretty good indication that there was a differential adaptation happening there. Um, so that's one thing. What we're doing in our lab is uh, trying to just enhance the precision of the research. So we're using effectively things your listeners probably don't care about, but different laboratory techniques that allow us to study the muscle cells themselves one by one as opposed to kind of throwing them all together, smashing them all up and then trying to guess kind of what happened. So uh, we've had some breakthroughs in technology um, and, and some movements in the method side of, of this research where uh, we can just get a lot more precision. When we enhance that level of precision, we start to see a clarity with what's happening. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Gotcha. With the adaptations that kind of elicit the shifts in fiber types, with the research that's been put out so far and with what you've observed, what is the normal timeline for seeing a shift in fiber type? And do timelines shift from, let's say, so to fast mm. to fast to slow? Yes. Okay, so that's another good question. It, it depends on the uh, level or the status of the muscle itself. So think about it this way. If somebody is very sedentary and a, a muscle hasn't been stimulated and challenged in a long time you, you all know this who work out it, it doesn't take much stimulus to cause adaptation right because they have such a low baseline and, and this is kind of the similar way of saying all right if you take somebody who's sedentary or fairly untrained uh anything works they see adaptations everywhere with the smallest dosage but to somebody who's more trained uh, they're gonna require more of that right so uh, you take a highly trained person who's been strength training really hard and consistently for five years, well, you're not going to see as much, uh, or it's going to take a lot more training and stimulus to cause adaptation. 
Um, so the same thing would be true at the fiber level. Um, in other words, maybe so to directly answer it, if we take somebody who's untrained and we expose them to four days a week of hard training, uh, you, you could probably see a change in fiber type in as little as a month. Like that would happen. Uh, conversely, when we take people and we do extreme overload uh, or animals rather and do extreme overload, like cut off one of their legs and make them walk, you know, 24 seven on one leg, uh, we see those changes that happen to fiber type in two weeks. Uh, but that's just not like you couldn't do that to your tissue. Also, when we take people in and send them up to space for 10 days, we've seen fiber type changes in as little as 10 days. But again, that's pretty extreme because you're going from, you know, 24-7 gravity to zero gravity. And so it, it really depends on the level of training and the level of, of stimulus. But, but the, the, I guess maybe the more specific or like realistic answer is if somebody is really highly trained, it will take them a long time to see adaptation if they continue to train in the same way. So let's say you've you've been powerlifting for five years. You're probably you've had five years of adaptation already, and so there's just not much left to go. You're you're at the diminishing returns, right? So it might take you another year to see really any additional change, and you might only change by a few percent. If you just started working out and you haven't worked out in five years, well, you would see those you know, see changes in whatever way you're training probably in a month. Um, so it, it kind of depends on on the training background. Gotcha. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to think about with someone, let's say, who's at more of um more of an accomplished or an elite level trying to progress. And what you mentioned yeah. is there needs to be a change of stimulus to obviously grow. Uh, this would also be true in the opposite direction. So say somebody was powerlifting for five years. If you continued to try to powerlift, you'd see marginal changes. But if you immediately switched after five years of nothing but powerlifting and you started doing endurance work, you would still see adaptations really quickly because now it's a totally different stimulus. And that you would move really fast in the opposite direction. So that that's an important piece to recognize as well. It's not necessarily a, are you in shape or not? It is a like how specific of a training stimulus have you been giving yourself for a long time? And are you doing something really different from that? That's what matters. It's not necessarily the trained versus untrained. Gotcha. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about detraining, but I'm gonna hold off on that because I actually have another question. So let's say we're working with a powerlifter who is been doing it for five to six years, they are pretty much capped on the strength level they can obtain for basically where they are now, but they want to stay in the specificity of the sport of powerlifting and progress at maybe a quicker rate. Yeah. What would be the logical thing to do as a coach? Like what would be the structure of their program going forward to get them to progress? Because I feel like to get rapid changes, they would almost need to do something completely non-specific to their approach, but they don't want to veer away from the goal at hand. So as a coach, like how yeah. would what what would you kind of do, and what would your next call be for structuring a program that will get them an adaptation at their level, but not take them away from the specificity of their sport? Yeah, so it, it's it's complicated. I can't give you an honest answer there because it it takes too many variables yeah. into account. However, I can give a, a bit of a framework. Cool. Um. So. One thing that we've kicked around with bodybuilders and stuff before and people that work in muscle hypertrophy, maybe if you stalled out, like you're saying, and I don't want to you know, change career paths entirely here or, or training paths, maybe you can vary the stimulus just um, at a smaller level. And so maybe this might be if, if you're traditionally used to doing sets of you know, threes and sets of four, sets of fives, maybe it would help you to switch up entirely and do a, a four-week-long block of sets of 20. 
or set to 50 or go nuts, like sets, you know, set to 100. That's not going to cause that significant of a change in your fiber type in, in just four weeks. And maybe what it's doing is actually training um, some fibers that haven't actually been used in a long time. That may then help you get past that plateau because uh, it, it, you only have so many fibers in your muscle, right? And in order to do something like powerlifting, you need as many of them activated as possible. And if you've had, you know, you have some chunk of them, say 10% of them that are just really not contributing to the, to the pie, getting them back on board may be what you need because the ones that you continue to train, they're already giving you all they got. And so the only way to get higher is to get the other ones on board. You have it. Uh, they'd be the same for hypertrophy, right? So if, if you've only trained in like the eight to 12 or 15 reps per set range and you just continue to train there and you stop seeing gains, it's, it's probably because or possibly because the fibers that respond to that type of training are maxed out already. So what you need to do is introduce some variation and maybe go higher in your rep range or go a lot lower, right? Because the, the fibers that are going to respond to like heavy doubles and heavy triples, uh, they're probably not being used a ton to do your sets of 8 to 10 or 12 or 15. And so you can see additional mass growth um, by training fibers that really, again, haven't been, been uh, asked to get to their uh, size ceiling. Right, so uh, that that is something that you could do, but you know, it would just be variation without completely eliminating your dreams and hopes and goals, if you want. Gotcha. So, what about taking it a step further and going like outside of, let's say, traditional variables? What about like doing something like blood flow blood flow restriction? Would that be something that you can consider sure. being different to facilitate a growth response? Yeah, it could certainly. Um, yeah, it's, it's you're kind of going after a different mechanism, but. Yeah, it, I don't have any reason to think you can go there now. It's not going to necessarily help for strength a lot, but if you're really at a place where you need some variation, um, it might be there. My honest gut with blood flow restriction, though, is it's probably more just a mental refresher than it is anything else. Like you get to do something different for a while. I don't know if it'd provide any specific physiological advantage, um, but you certainly could try it. Gotcha. Yeah, that was just an example of how nitty gritty yeah. we can go with variation and different kind of training modalities. Mm hmm. So I want to ask a question on one of the case studies that was published not too long ago on the elite powerlifter who had the muscle fiber that was greater than the size of the rhinoceros, right? And yeah. I, I don't I don't know if we could say names of who it was, but that that study like kind of blew my mind and honestly when I covered it, it kind of blew up. And it was really cool yeah. because the type A fiber composition that he had is kind of insane, right? For like a normal athlete yeah it, yeah it was um he was a he was he was is a pretty pretty unique fella um and of course if, you, if you're not familiar with this or haven't heard it uh yes definitely on anabolic steroids but, and a lot of them for a long time um so that was that was an interesting piece but yeah he uh some of his fibers were fairly normal but then he had some that, that were just so large we had a search for a while and we we're trying to figure out like what the hell can we even compare this to and and all the literature, the closest we could find was a rhinoceros <laughs> fiber size. So, uh, yeah, it, it was there. Um, now, the individual also probably has, oh, I don't know, 25 years, maybe more, of really specific dedicated strength training in a lot of different fashions, powerlifting, bodybuilding, um, kind of all over the place there. So the muscles really have been exposed to a lot of different stimuli fairly consistently at a very high uh, intensity and effort 
in addition to a lot of focus on nutrition and lots of anabolic steroids. So something like that is probably needed to get to that level. It's not going to get there from a, an, an eight-week training cycle where you kind of trained pretty hard for a little bit and then didn't finish the rest. So, yeah, it was very interesting. I mean, I don't know what we can draw from it per se, but other than the fact that steroids work, <laughs> they work really well. <laughs> and training really hard for a long time uh, also works pretty well. So I actually do want to ask one question about using anabolics yeah. and muscle fiber type composition. So with anabolics specifically, is the type of training what indicates how the fibers will shift entirely? Like, Because with, with that study, wasn't there a mention that the fibers had more nuclei than what's normal? Or am I, I might yes. be misspeaking there. Yes. So with, no, no, that's right. Yeah. So with anabolics, my question is, is like, do we even have an idea of what the top capability even really is? Assuming that they're, they're done, like they're used correctly and training over time and intensity and effort is always there. Like, do we have any clue of the potential that the human body could even reach? I don't think so. I mean, if you look at the bodybuilding community, it seems, I mean, it seems to be tapering off a bit now, but I mean, if you look at like Flex Wheeler and then everything prefix Flex Wheeler, you're just like, or, or even, you know, some other guy, Lee Haney and stuff, and you're just like, there was a difference between Colombo and, and these guys. And there's this generation that just started and you're just like, whoa, like these guys just got really big and they didn't have that mass before. So uh, now they were using stories before that, but it, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know if we can get much larger than what some of the folks in that community have already got to, but I don't think we understand what the capabilities are. No. Uh, the one thing that, that we're trying to figure out though is, is what is the true limiting factor? So for a while we thought, okay, perhaps it was limited by the amount of nuclei. So if you're unfamiliar with that nuclei are uh, the center, the kind of the control center of a muscle fiber. And human muscles are really unique because we have thousands of these control centers, these nuclei per cell. Most of biology has one nuclei per cell. So they take a lot of these control centers. Uh, these places hold your DNA. And again, this is what's telling your muscle fiber to grow, shrink, die, repair, whatever it needs to do. So it is regulating that. What happens is you can have satellite cells come into this, uh, that are kind of hanging out on what's called the basal lamina, the outside of the cell. And they will enter the middle of the cell, they'll do what's called differentiation, or they'll turn into a nucleus. And then that will allow your muscle cell to grow because it is limited by how many control centers you have. So the, the business example would be if, if you are if you own a you know mom and pop's coffee shop and you want to open up another shop in three states over, that's fine. But then if you want to open up a third facility, a fourth facility, well, eventually you have to start hiring other store managers. You can't manage a store in Kentucky while at the same time you're managing a store in Tennessee. And especially then when you open one up in Texas and California and Washington. So the amount of coffee shops you can open up is limited by the amount of managers you can hire. This is the same thing with muscle growth, right? And this is at least what we're, our current thinking is. One of the things that we know steroids do, anabolic steroids, specifically testosterone, is it enhances the amount of those satellite cells that will go to a muscle fiber and then differentiate into a nuclei. And so that can help augment the process, but still at some point you're limited by the amount of satellite cells you have, at least we think. And that's where the science sort of stops right now. And so we're trying to figure out like there's some relationship here between satellite cells, nuclei, and potential hypertrophic uh, growth of, of muscle cells, but we don't know exactly what that means. And, and part of it is we've got, you know, we used a lot of animal models, not my lab, but 
you know, others like mice and things like that. And so maybe there's just physiological differences there. Maybe the signals aren't right. So, um, I mean, because like I said, we keep seeing folks that, that, that break it down and they break these barriers. So we don't really know. Interesting. And speaking of kind of things that we're still trying to figure out, I know you mentioned earlier that you don't really see a lot of individuals with pure type 2X fibers. And I think the last time we talked. No, almost never. So the last, I think the last time we talked is we, you, you brought up that sometimes though you'll see them and like, let's say somebody who's maybe been in a coma or has like had, uh, let's say their lower half of their body was paralyzed for quite some time. And you said that sometimes we'll see type 2X fibers there. Is that, am I remembering this correctly? Yeah, you're dead on. So uh, again, those to kind of take you back to the beginning, there's type one slow twitch, type two A or fast twitch, and type two X incredibly fast twitch. And if you look across the literature, you'll see a combination of mistakes right, with the, that the scientists have made in this stuff. But you just have to trust me that when done properly, the amount of individual muscle cells that are you know purely two X or close, like ninety five percent or higher, is just extraordinarily rare. So we never see this 2X fiber in its state. The only time we will see the 2X being expressed is when it is a 2A, 2X hybrid. And those tend to be very, very highly concentrated in people that are untrained. I have biopsied, I don't even know, 400 people, probably something like that, maybe more. And we have analyzed hundreds of thousands of individual muscle fibers. And I don't know if I've ever seen anybody with more than uh, gosh, like half a percent of their fibers being pure 2X. Uh, the vast majority of the time, I would probably say if we biopsy 100 people, 99 will have literally zero 2X fibers. Uh, it's just very, very, very rare. And the one that has it might have 2% or something like that. It's, it's just super, super small. And the, well, the only difference being, um, again, like the people you mentioned, people that have nerve denervation or you know their paraplegic or something like that and a muscle hasn't been activated for years they can start to build up not only a measurable amount of this 2x fibers but the number can get extraordinarily high like 50 60 70 percent of their fibers will be the pure 2x's and so we don't really see that anywhere else um kind of over here is as a side note if you look at uh, felines like uh, tigers and, and anything in that category they tend to have a huge percentage of 2x fibers uh, and of course, they're not unfit. So that's one of the reasons why they're so much faster than we are. They have these things. And they also have an either even faster fiber type called 2B, which humans don't even have. So, yeah, it, it is complicated. We don't understand exactly what the point of the 2X fibers are. Uh, they go up when we don't work out. And you know, when we work out at all, and it doesn't really matter what type of training you do, those 2X fibers would generally transition away into being 2A. Interesting. Uh, to go down. So, yeah. so to go kind of off that, um, fibers going away, right? So we talked about kind of a loose timeline for adaptations for certain levels of athletes. What about detraining? Do you see as fast of a shift or as much of a shift when somebody goes from very active to not active? Because I'm guessing that, like anything, once you're at the elite level, it's going to probably progress quicker. But have you guys noticed any or observed anything that would suggest a timeline for folks who are active and then stop for a while, whether that be because of job or so forth, and they are a little yeah. bit detrained? Yeah. So um, again, it will come down to how big of a difference the stimulus is, right? So if you're going from like, oh, like twice a week, I'll, you know, I'll kind of like hit the elliptical for 30 minutes and you go from that to not exercising, 
well, it's not really that much of a change. But if you go from, no, I'm, I'm hitting, like I'm doing spin class twice a week, I'm lifting heavy circuits for bone, and you're getting all this training in, and then you go to nothing, well, then that change is going to happen very fast. So I, I would expect to be, if you take somebody who's very active five days a week, and all of a sudden they go to none, I would say within a month you would see changes in fiber type. Interesting. So what about somebody who's, let's say, prepping for a meet and they're like lifting four or five days a week. And then after the meet, they shift to two and three days. What would you kind of guess the shift in fibers would be? And to the extent, cause I know it's a, it's a bigger question there, right? Because it's like, what are they doing? How much, how yes. intense? Yeah. But I guess my, my kind of question is, is would you see a shift? And if so, would it be rapid because it's not as specific in the nature of the training or what would you kind of guess what would happen? My guess in that situation is you would not because there's, you know, if you go down to training twice a week, there's probably still enough of a stimulus to keep those things alive. Um, so you're probably okay there. Um, one thing I can talk about is taper. So we done a study years ago uh, where we looked at taper and this was in cross country runners, collegiate cross country runners. And we looked at them before and at the end of a three week taper. And in this particular case, their taper was a result of a was a fifty percent reduction in, in training mileage, All right? So I think they're running something like sixty five miles per week bef before taper, and by the third week of taper, they were down to thirty miles per week, or you know something like that. So just mileage. And this model is nice because running is extremely quantifiable, right? Like lifting is a lot harder to quantify by, but this one is just like how many miles you run, and we had of course we tracked heart rate and we were able to capture intensity and all that stuff. But what we one of the things we saw was the there was no change in VO2 max pre to post. There was no change in the amount of enzymes in the muscle fibers that say regulate anaerobic glycolysis or aerobic glycolysis. Like metabolically, nothing happened there. What we did see though is the fast twitch fibers exploded. Uh, there was like there was about a, around a ten to fifteen percent improvement in fast twitch muscle fiber strength. So this is, you know, you can imagine we take biopsies, uh, we isolate the individual muscle cells and you kind of tie it to a pole, if you will. And then you put a, like a little force transducer at the other end of the pole and you can measure, you know, how, how hard that muscle can contract maximally. So that the individual cell itself's maximum force production, its speed, uh, and even its size. So we saw about a 10% increase in fast switch fiber size by just taking three weeks and doing a little bit less training. So this is when you said like, oh, if I go from five days a week to two days a week, is it bad? Well, it might actually be a good thing because what we think probably happened in this folks is that high mileage was probably fatiguing and compromising that muscle. And so when they backed off, it was sort of allowed to return to baseline. It's not necessarily that it really grew, but it probably grew back to where its default setting was because it was being hammered so much by all the, all the training volume. So, you know, it, it really depends, like I said, on, on kind of how hard did you train hard for four weeks for that meet and back off? Or is this a four-year training cycle where you're really putting the throttle down because you're getting ready for the Olympics or, or something? So it depends on how, um, how much training went into it beforehand. Wow, that's, that is insane. And I feel like that only complicates it further when you think about the central and peripheral nervous system too and how mm -hmm. much those are probably at play with that detrain, well, not detrain, but the taper and everything else, right? Like, yeah, well, yeah, of course. I mean, the signal from the nerve is what's going to tell yeah. the muscle fiber to do what it's going to do. So it's a, always a component to it. Um, and then if you look, if you just think about human performance, 
I'm a muscle guy, obviously, so I default to muscle. That's what I like. But human performance is really a function, a movement-wise, of three things. Number one, there has to be some sort of neurological input to tell something what to do. That nerve has to force a muscle to contract. And that muscle has to, the contraction of it has to pull on some sort of connective tissue, which inserts in the bone and then moves the bone. That's how human movement happens. So if you want to look at human performance, even just from the movement perspective, you have potential contributions and changes and adaptations at any and all three of those levels. So if you're only taking one into account, well, you don't know what happened to the other two. You, you really don't know exactly what happened. And scientifically, it's just really hard to do all three at once. So we virtually just stick to one. Yeah. Wow. Um, before we cut this podcast off, because I know we are a little bit pressed on time, I did want to ask you a couple more questions that are a little bit more applicable to training specific fibers. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've learned from you is when you said that muscle fibers could like, the way to look at them is structure equals function, right? So pretty much how the body, like how a muscle on the body performs and on a daily basis for that matter is probably a good suggestion of the fiber composition that comes along with them. So my question for you is, as a coach, as an athlete who wants to, let's say, let's say they want to, let's say I want to strengthen my quads, right? So we can guess that there's going to be a little bit more probably fast twitch there, especially if I've been training pretty strategically over the last few years, working on my strength. So my, my question for you is, when you're structuring variables off of that logic for a training program, what do you kind of prioritize first and last? I know it's a very loaded question because it's going to vary based on goals, needs, and where somebody's at. But just as kind of like a guideline for folks who might be trying to structure their training a little bit more strategically, which exercise variables are most important for influencing certain types of fibers? So if I want to influence, let's say, a more predominantly what's suggested to be a fast twitch muscle, what variables should I look to train a little bit more of versus like, let's say, a more slow twitch? So like the soleus, how would I improve that to perform better should i use higher reps lower reps should i do a little bit of both how should i uh how should i approach that yeah i don't think i have a great answer for you so at this point it's mostly guessing okay but i will guess for you based on what i know now i'll give you my best guess uh, if you're trying to train fast twitch fibers you probably should stick to things at higher intensity uh, this could be speed or uh load right so percentage of your max you're probably going to see a better response by doing that so either heavy or fast at minimum you want to train social fibers it's probably going to be the opposite right which is something to a lot of fatigue um, but now it really depends on what you're training them to do what you're trying to get them to accomplish but that's that's the best guess of what i would say now and again i don't know if that's entirely fully true but it's as far as we can go so far interesting so I guess my, where my head goes next is, so train the muscles in a way that is best suggested kind of based on how they perform and how they're designed to perform. But if we want mm -hmm. the logic that, let's say my quads are at a level where there's not much strength I'm actually putting on them at a point, would it pay off to train them in kind of like the reverse fashion? So training them with... Yeah, so this is, this is why that question is so damn hard because um, it, it's, a, it's a coaching philosophy goal. Yeah. Right. A question, I mean. So uh, the example I can give you is uh, from the athletes that I work with. Typically, I work with fighters. Okay. And so let's imagine you had a, an MMA fighter who was an, uh, an unbelievable striker. So you had a, okay, Anderson Silva, Conor McGregor, right? What are you picked there, right? And just deadly striker. Should that person work really hard on their grappling and their wrestling 
so that they don't have such you know, a big gap in their overall skills? Or should they say, look, you know, I'll I can train for three years on my wrestling and I'm still not going to be competitive with these guys or wrestlers their entire life. So I'm just not going to waste my ton of time on wrestling. And I'm just going to make sure that my striking is always at the highest level possible. And I'm just going to win that way. I can't tell you one way is better than the other one. I, all I have to say is those are philosophies, right? And, and whether or not you say, no, like let's just play to our strengths in this case. Okay. You want to train faster fibers, train heavy, train fast, or do you want to shore up your weaknesses? Okay. you got a slow twitch, uh, quad, you know, let's give it the opposite stimulus to, to make it come up and kind of match a little bit. I, I can't answer those questions because it, you know, it's, there is no right answer to them. It just depends on how you're, you know, what do you think you should go after? Um, I can give you direction about what to do once you make that decision. Gotcha. But which decision to make is, is just really, really tough. Gotcha. So let's say, cause I feel like, I feel like it also comes down to sport too. And what, yeah, most definitely. Like, are you a bodybuilder? Well, then the answer is a little more obvious. Like, are you a sport athlete? Well, that's a little trickier. Yeah. That, that's like, so we went, I recently went to the Under Armour Human Performance Summit. I was talking to James Newberry and his logic to training, because CrossFit is such a diverse sport, he's like, his logic was kind of what you just said. He's like, look, he's like, I could either train my weaknesses and never really be as competitive as the guys who are at the top of the game in those. Or mm -hmm. I could keep those at like maintenance, but really double down on my strengths and really try to get those event wins because that's going to help me out in the long run. So I guess the yeah. better question is, is then looking at it from a bigger picture as to your competition, the sport you're in, and then structuring training around that, right? Yeah, for, I mean, exactly. Like, are you want to be rich froning or, or not? Like, like, do you want to be, you want to win because you're just like pretty good at everything. And by the end of the weekend, you just have enough buildup points that no one can catch you because you just don't have any holes. Or you want to be opposite and just be like, well, I'm going to lose this event, so I'm just not going to waste any gas on it, but I'm going to make sure I get first in, in these other five events and hope that total gives me enough to win. That's, that's It's just tough to say. You know, it's, it's up to you to decide. So, yeah, I mean, it's funny because right before we got on here, I was working on my class lecture where I'm actually changing my entire program design class. Uh, and the first thing I'm going to do at the beginning of the year is, because I kind of break it down into two components, right? Quality program design right? Uh, so designing your workouts to get your, the thing you want is really only two things. It's being really clear with what you want to train for and then being clear with how to train for it. And I feel like the vast majority of people only talk about number two, which is how to train, right? Well, what intensity should I use? Well, should I use a barbell? Should I, um, which order should I do my exercises in? Those are all questions about how to train. But more important to that is you got to understand what you're training for in the first place. Like, what are you really going after? And so spending more time on the front end of what should I be really targeting? Once you make that decision, your execution of, you know, how to actually do it is not that complicated. And I don't think we um, have that many disagreements in that area. But typically why people don't hit their goals is because they don't spend enough time really addressing what goal they should be going after in the first place. I love that. It's beautifully said. Man, every yeah. time every time we talk, it just makes me wish I could go back to grad school and then enroll <laughs> at Fullerton even more. Literally, because yeah. the 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 constant like we're not sure just yet. It just it makes you actually think about what you've experienced versus what we've seen versus where it could go based off of pulling all the suggestions there. Man, I appreciate the time. Unfortunately, we are coming to a close. We're definitely gonna have to have you on for a part two. I want to really pick your brain about periodization a little bit more and structuring training variables oh, for sure. certain adaptations. 
So we'll definitely have you back yeah. on in a couple months for sure. Um, before we head out, man, I would love for you to give the listeners an idea of where to follow you, where they can learn more about you and so forth. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Twitter and Instagram are the best place. So Twitter is nice because I can directly link to things. If you're the type of person who wants to see the study that I'm talking about or something, uh, I don't put my link in my bio every damn time I make a post on Instagram. It's just too much pain in the ass. So, uh, but there's, there's more action on Instagram usually. So it's just my name. It's Dr. Andy Galpin on both of those. And then um, if you are the, the, the real nerd type or you really want to actually you know, spend some time learning. Uh, my YouTube page is basically just all of my class lectures. So uh, you could really get a big chunk of, of my class material for free there without having to come all the way to Fullerton and actually enroll. So I put those up in five minute videos, 25 minute videos, and even, you know, 55 minute videos. So I'm like, if you really want to, you know, like, for example, if you're just like super interested in your own training or you're a personal trainer, but maybe you switch career fields and you were in accounting before and you don't have an undergrad degree, you could get pretty close to finishing that damn thing by just watching these videos. So that's, that was the intent. It's not meant to just like drive a ton of YouTube views. Cause like, who's going to watch an hour long video on exercise selection, <laughs> but I don't care yeah, if you no. do that. That's great. That, so. That's for sure. You gotta be a, you gotta be a special type of uh, special type of loving it to watch a full hour mm -hmm. on that. But listeners too, I will drop all the links below in the description of this podcast for those who want to follow along and find Dr. Galpin on all these different mediums, but Dr. Galpin, thank you again for the time, man. It's always a pleasure talking. You're one of my idols in this industry, and I really do appreciate the time and the effort that you put into all walks of life and trying to help out the field progress. I far too kind, man. Far too kind. <laughs> <laughs>